want to welcome in those of you uh, who are joining us online. It's good to have you be a part of uh, Freedom Online. So glad to have you tune in that way. And uh, I want to share with all of you here in the house and others who watch online, uh, one cool thing that's going on today that we celebrate is uh, our dear friends, Harry and Patty Bishop, who have been worshiping with us all the time that they have been in Sarasota. Many of you know Harry and Patty. They uh, were a part of the team that launched this church and were with us for years and have continued to be with us since going to Sarasota. Well, they have been working toward uh, pulling people together by opening the clubhouse in the neighborhood where they Public there, so let's show a little freedom love to uh, the extended freedom family in Sarasota. We're glad to have you guys worshiping with us today. We are about to dive into a new series. Uh, yeah, there, there they are. Uh, Connecting in Sarasota. Good stuff happening this morning. Uh, we're diving into a new series today, and I'm so glad that you're here as we're just getting started into this. And I hope that you will make it a priority for the next five weeks to track with us, even if you have to be out some Sunday, to be able to uh, hopefully access that online because this is such an important series. But I thought before we dive into the meat of the matter, dealing with the serious stuff, uh, it wouldn't hurt to just have a little uh, lighthearted moment before we get started. And so Tony Maniscalco is always my source, uh, always sending me stuff to brighten my week. So this is directly from Tony. Uh, some ever wonder questions just to get your mind turning today on really deep questions for life. Do you ever wonder why the sun lightens our hair but darkens our skin? Good question. Ever wonder why you don't see the headline, Psychic Wins Lottery this week? <laughs> ever wonder why the word abbreviated is such a long word? Ever wonder why it is that doctors call what they do practice? Ever wonder why lemon juice is made with artificial flavor and dishwashing liquid is made with real lemons? Here's a good one. Ever wonder why the man who invests all your money is called a broker? Ever wonder why the time of day is when the traffic is slowest is called rush hour? Ever wonder why there isn't mouse-flavored cat food? Ever wonder why Noah didn't swat those two mosquitoes? I have wondered that one. You ever wonder why they sterilize the needle for lethal injections? And you ever wonder why when they, they have those indestructible black boxes used in airplanes, why they don't make the whole airplane out of that stuff? Ever wonder why sheep don't shrink when it rains? And ever wonder why they're called apartments when they're all stuck together? I like this one. If con is the opposite of pro, you ever wonder if Congress is the opposite of progress? <laughs> and finally, if flying is so safe, did you ever wonder why they call the place at the airport the terminal? <laughs> you can go home and ponder those. On to the matters at hand. The series that we start today is entitled, If I Could Change Just One Thing. I want you to pause and consider that for just a moment because I'm guessing that if we're honest, all of us have got at least one thing that we really wish that we could change about our lives. The, the trick would be paring it down to just one thing because most of us would probably have more of a list of things that we wish that we could change. Now, as, as I ask you to think about this, I don't want you to come up with something like, you know... I, 
the thing I would change is I'd be a bazillionaire. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd win the Powerball or whatever. We're not here to, to make you rich. I'm talking about the things that really do define who you are and, and the quality of your life. If you could change just one thing about your life, what would it be? And we're not going to pull you around the room, but as we just think out loud about what that that might look like, I wonder what kinds of things are coming to mind for us. I, I imagine for some, if we got really honest, the one thing that you might change, it might be that you would not have gotten into a particular relationship that ended up being really destructive, or, or you might wish above everything else that you could go back and undo something like being unfaithful in a relationship and all the damage that it caused. Would the thing that you would change be that you would eliminate some controlling habit in your life? That you'd get rid of some type of addiction or compulsion that you've just never been able to reel in? Oh, you've stopped it a hundred times only to start it again a hundred and one. Would the thing that you would get rid of be a lingering sense of pain? Or would it be a fear that you just cannot get a handle on? What's the one thing in life that you would change? Now, for many of us who've grown up in the church, we've become well acquainted with the good news that the biggest thing that needs to change in our lives has been dealt with through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That the biggest thing that needed to change is that we were bound to our sin, that we were separated from God, and that we needed something put in order that we could not put in order, that we were completely helpless and hopelessly apart from God, doomed by our sins. And the good news is that because of what Christ has done on the cross, through faith in Him, we can be forgiven, we can be made a part of the family of God, never to be separated from God again. And that is wonderful good news. But for some of us who've been in the church for a spell, we have discovered that there is some distressing news beyond the good news. Many of us have accepted the good news of what Christ has done for us. We've gotten saved. We've gotten forgiveness. We belong to the family of God. We've felt all that wonderful sense of renewal and cleansing. And everything is new. A clean slate. A fresh start. Life is suddenly good now because of faith in Jesus and God's forgiveness. But uh oh, on the other side of that, we start bumping into things that we thought we lost when we got saved. We got forgiven of these things, and yet on the other side of forgiveness, we discover, I've still got problems. I've still got hurts that I had before I got saved. I've still got habits that I had before I got saved. I'm still hung up on things. I'm still angry about things. I've still got damage that was there before I got saved. What do I do about that? Now, I don't know what has happened in your life. I don't know what your Christian experience has been. I just know about my own past. I know about the church tradition that I grew up in, and I'm very grateful for that tradition. But I'm just going to be really honest with you. We didn't know how to do a lot more than tell you how to get saved and how to get dunked. And we were good at those things. We knew how to lead people to Jesus, and we knew how to dunk them once we got them led to Jesus. And we essentially, beyond leading you to Jesus, had three things to tell you. If you've still got problems after getting saved, here's what you need to do. Go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers. Go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers. I grew up in that tradition, so guess what I've been doing my entire life? I go to church, I read my Bible, I say my prayers. But guess what I discovered even after doing that? I've still got issues. 
There's stuff in me that is still broken. There's hurt in me that didn't just get fixed by going to church, reading my Bible, and saying my prayers. There are things that didn't just go away because I did the big three. Anybody in the room identify with that? Oh my goodness, hands all over the room. Some of y'all went to church with me, I guess. Do you begin to recognize that there is this gigantic deficit? That the church has lost a big part of its message? Praise God for the message that our sins can be forgiven and we can be made right with God through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. That is the heart of the matter. But is that the end of it? Because unfortunately, I I know for a fact, I've been doing this a while, that churches are today packed with people, many of whom, in, in many instances, most of whom have come to faith in Jesus, but we're still plagued with all kinds of problems. And we can't figure out how to get healing. And we hear the message, go to church. All right, I'm at church. Read your Bible. Okay, I'll read my Bible. Say your prayers. I'm doing that. And still I've got these problems. What do I do? There are two passages of Scripture I want to share with you this morning as we just begin to kick things off. The first one is 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. It's in your outline if, if you just want to turn to that. And there Paul begins by saying this. We are like clay jars in which this treasure is stored. I I brought in my own little clay jar this morning. This sits on the shelf in my office. It's actually one of the favorite things in my office. Uh, You can't probably fully appreciate it from your seat from this much distance. But this is a really, really crude clay pot. Uh, Some African ladies on one of our mission trips to Tanzania gave this as a gift. And um, it obviously is something that they made by hand. And to me, it's a really good picture of what Paul's talking about when he says of us that we have this treasure in clay pots. What's the treasure that he's talking about? Well, I'm not going to back up and preach all this in context, but he's, he's just been talking about the treasure that we possess, those of us who are followers of Christ, that we possess the treasure of the glory and goodness of God that's poured into us through Jesus, His Spirit living in us, that God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness is poured into us. Paul talks about in Ephesians how all the fullness of Christ dwells in us. That is a mind-blowing thought, isn't it? All the fullness of Christ in you, in me. But here's the great dilemma. He poured all the glory, the grace, the goodness, the love, and power of Christ in a clay pot. I carry the fullness of Christ in me. The problem You're looking for Christ in me, and I've got him wrapped up in a real crude clay pot. And so many times when you look at my life, hoping to see the love of Christ, the power of Christ, the grace and forgiveness of Christ, and unfortunately a lot of times all you saw was the clay pot. We'll go ahead and finish reading the passage. We're like clay jars with this treasure, where this treasure is stored. The real power comes from God and not from us. We often suffer, but we're never crushed, even when we don't know what to do, literally, even when we're confused, we never give up. In times of trouble, God is with us, and when we're knocked down, we get up again. So we constantly experience the death of Jesus in our bodies, but this is so that the life of Jesus can also be seen in our bodies. What's he saying? He's pointing out a reality that we are very dialed into. 
You want to know what our lives look like, even as followers of Jesus? They look a lot like this clay pot. Now, what you probably can't easily see or appreciate, since in between us, is just how crude and rough this thing is. If we had real show and tell time and I had time to pass this around the room, what you would see if you could look at this up close is this is about the crudest piece of pottery you've ever seen. Looks like a child made it. There's not one little square centimeter on here that isn't just covered with scrapes and and imperfections and pot marks and indentations. It's, It's just the coloring isn't the same. It's all black on one side. The inside is so crude, you'd, you'd never want to eat your cereal out of this. You wouldn't want to do your Cheerios out of this bowl because it's so crude and rough. And when I look at this pot, I am truly reminded of the reality of my life. That if you get up close and personal, you just see all kinds of imperfections in my life. But you see, I grew up in church. And I learned very early on... That it's a dangerous thing for people to be able to see how imperfect you are. I mean, truly, if you could take this thing home with you, you'd see how imperfect it is. It won't sit up straight. You put it on a hard surface and it's, it's so wonky, it just lays to one side or the other. The top does this. It's just wonky all the way around. And I learned that my life is so much like this that it's wonky in all, all directions. That there are so many things that are wrong with it. So I learned as a good church-going Christian, there are two things that you can do to deal with that. One of them is what I'm doing right now, and that is I'm showing you something at a great safe distance so that you miss most of the imperfections. If I keep just enough space between me and you, you can see what's good about me and overlook most of the imperfections. You can't see most of what's wrong with this pot from there. Church works that way. I can keep a safe distance from you, and you can be pretty impressed with me as long as you just see me in the spotlight from a distance. You see, if you have to go with Jackie and go home with me, then you're going to get close enough to start seeing all the, the wonky stuff about this, about, about this life. The other thing that I learned that you can do is you can keep your distance or you can just paint over, gloss over what's not right. Church teaches you to do that pretty fast. Somebody asks you how you're doing, they try and get close up to you, and you just tell them, I'm just blessed. I'm just doing great. I'm better than I deserve. Blessed and highly favored. We just paint over everything that's broken and imperfect about us. Tragically, neither of those tactics get us anywhere remotely close to God's power for healing. They don't get us within 10 miles of any form of divinely empowered recovery. It just keeps us at a place of denial. And what we'll see today is that denial is the most common roadblock to recovery and healing. Denying that I've got problems is the place that most of us will stay that keeps us from beginning to even tap into any of what God has for us. God has a different plan for dealing with our imperfections. It's not to keep us at a distance and it's not to cover them up. Paul spelled out what God's plan is. We can sum them up with the four terms or phrases of what he spelled out in these verses. He lets us suffer. He lets us be confused. He lets us experience trouble. And he lets us get knocked down. 
Now, some of that suffering and trouble and confusion is because of our poor choices, and some of it's because of what others have done to us, and some of it is just bad luck. It's just living in a broken, fallen world. This stuff happens to us. But the long and short of it is, here's what God's plan is for revealing His goodness, the treasure that He has put inside of us that's wrapped up in clay pots. Instead of painting over it and keeping it at a distance, He brings it front and center, and He says, here's what I'm going to do to that clay pot. I'm going to bring a little trouble. I'm going to bring a, a, a little difficulty. I'm going to bring some pressure. You know what I'm going to do to that pot? I'm going to let enough stuff press in on it that it begins to, to crack. It begins to break. And we're over here thinking, I've got to hold it together. I've got to be at church on Sunday. I've got to get up and preach. I can't let my cracks show. I've got to cover this. I've got to hold it together for everybody. What would they think if they saw my crack? And here's what we finally learn in life. You let enough cracks form, and what's on the inside is going to come out. The truth of the matter is, as long as I think I can hold my life together and project the right image for you and make you think my family life, my personal life, my, my walk with God, all of that is just right, you'll be so inspired that you'll be touched by God. And the truth of the matter is, what we'll do is we'll miss the grace of God. Because it's through our cracks, our brokenness, our desperate need for God, and then our experience of the grace and forgiveness of God that others actually begin to tap into that, to see it, and to experience it. It's one of the passages that I want to to be the overarching passage for this series, and it is Isaiah 57, 18 and 19. And here the Lord says this, I have seen how they acted. Let's don't run past that. The Lord says to us today, I have seen how they acted. I have seen how you acted. I have seen how the preacher acted. This is the hard thing about dealing with God, isn't it? You can't hold it far enough back from him to hide it from him. You can't paint over it and hide it from him. He says, oh no, I know the whole thing. I have seen how you acted. Uh Uh-oh, that's got to be bad, isn't it? But I will heal them. I will lead them and help them. I will comfort those who mourn. I will offer... Peace to all, both near and far. I will heal my people. That's better news than we're recognizing it as this morning. Are we to say amen across the board? God says, I know what you've done beyond knowing what you've done. I know what you are. I know how you act, I know how you think, and I know how much you expect me to be mad and wanting to just, you know, push you aside. And he said, but instead, I'm going to draw near. I'm going to bring comfort. I'm going to heal what's broken inside of you. There is a biblical plan for healing that goes beyond go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers. Don't stop going to church. Don't stop reading your Bible and saying your prayers. That's a part of the plan. But that alone will not get you past the most troubling things. There is healing to be experienced. And I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you throughout this series every week to hear real life stories of healing and transformation. And I can't think of any two people that I have seen this reality embodied in more clearly than John and Sally Beck. I'm going to invite them to come and join me on stage. I'm going to ask you to give a freedom welcome to them.
thank you guys for coming to share your story. You're off. Except for right now. I want to um, go off script a little bit. I told Mark I would um, talk a little bit about, about what Celebrate Recovery is before I started my story. But before I go there, I want to ask you something about our church and what it represents that um, you see three leaders of our church standing up here. And you're going to hear a little bit about our past. And um, if you look at other ministry leaders in our church and our elders and trustees, We've all got broken past, and um, where do we find that example from, that you would uh, get people like that to stand in front and um, share the same message that Jesus did? A good place for us to start is in our uh, recovery ministry. Um, celebrate Recovery is not a place for those people. It's it's a place for people like everyone in this room that... Um, it's safe, and it's a place you can go where there will be no judgment. And the very first time you go, you just may just sit there and just say, I want to listen. I'm curious. I want to see what's going on. You may go for a loved one. Um, of course, you can always go for yourself. We have a meal. Um, we will alternate between teachings and testimonies. And um, then we break off in gender-specific small groups, um, men's groups and women's groups. And uh, there's where you'll see the real healing and recovery happen. That's where people can get honest and free and just um, talk about what's going on in their lives. One of the common fallacies, though, about CR is the, the makeup. Only a third of the people in our CR are people with substance abuse problems. Um, the rest of them are codependency issues, grief, Sexual issues, you name it, gambling, so on. It's, it's just a completely different makeup. What we know and what we believe is this. The hurt, habit, or hang-up does not matter. Um, what matters is at the center of recovery is Jesus. And it doesn't matter what has got you down, brokeless, or without hope. Christ is the solution. And we can use it for any problem going on in our life. And we see it every single day. Amen? Now, as uh, Mark explained, um, we're going to talk about our journey through recovery, Sally and I. And we're going to start with this first principle. And this first principle is about our powerlessness, um, the initial breakthrough of denial, and how we came to grips with our own, our lives unmanageability. Um, for me... The insanity of my life goes way back. It goes back to when I was a preteen. Um, I had come through my early childhood through the Vietnam War, and I was a child of a Marine. And um, there were lots of gatherings of, of the Marines, and I saw, I saw these men, and they were, they were frightened. They were, they were afraid of what was going on around them. They were just very uncomfortable in their skin. But one of the things I did notice was at the gatherings where alcohol was served, things changed. The, the mood changed and seemed to be a lot happier. 
But the one thing that was always present most of the time for adults and kids alike was tremendous fear and anxiety. And um, one example that stands clear in my mind is when we were on the, the base or around the base in classroom, whenever there was a knock on the door at a classroom, Almost all of us military kids would look up because very frequently they would come get one of us to take us out of the class. And that meant that um, somebody's dad wasn't coming back. And um, the next vivid memory I have is there was a bunch of us out in the woods and we were standing around a fire. We camped out a lot. We wore fatigues and stuff and that's how we played. And um, I was the youngest of a big bunch of boys, and um, we were just talking smack. And one of the boys pulled out a bottle of vodka, and, and it got passed around, and um, I think it was cherry vodka. Um, and it came to me, I took a big pull of it, and it wasn't a pull because I was going for the effect of alcohol. I was just trying to show up in front of these boys. I was going to do it right. And man, did it burn. It went down hard. And um, I thought, wow. And then all of a sudden, this feeling came over me. The alcohol just suddenly gave me this feeling of calm. The anxiety was gone, and it was magical. Um, I never felt that way before. I had sips off booze before, but I never felt like that. That was a wave of calm. And I'll tell you, for the next 25 years, I chased that feeling. And um, I, chasing that initial feeling through drugs and alcohol cost me almost everything that mattered to me. It, um, took, away, it took away a lot. And um, the cost, it's, it was something I couldn't see then. I can see now. I, I saw after I got into recovery, um, I had to join the military after high school instead of going to college. I missed the birth of my first child. The looks of shame from my family because... Um, I'd just sit in ball games and I'd have a drink and I'd be shouting obscenities. My first marriage ended very hard and painful for both of us. Um, and just the looks, the looks of disappointment and hurt because John or dad was going to miss another thing or didn't do the next thing he was supposed to do. I had broken another promise. So over 25 years, what I did was I developed this deep sense of guilt, remorse, and as a result of my denial, I grew resentments inside of me at the, crit the critical things people were saying about me, about my behavior. These things ate me alive from the inside. So it this point in time, I just have to drink to be comfortable in my own skin or pop a pill or do something. 
For those of us in recovery that know recovery, this is a classic example of denial through substance abuse. And some people do other things. This is just one way. And this denial is a form of insanity. Sanity is, um, and, and recovery is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And there was never a different result. For instance, the very first night, that night that I drank alcohol for effect that first time, what my memory doesn't want me to remember is, is I was sick hours later. I was sick from drinking that vodka. And I got sick from my stomach, and I woke up covered in it, and I felt awful. Even with that awful feeling inside of me, I could not help but think, I want to do that again. Who does that? Time and time again, my drinking came at a very high cost. And um, almost every really bad experience I had in my lifetime, drugs or alcohol played a key part in it. Um, I was directly responsible, but um, I did not honestly attribute my decisions or behavior as playing a role in that. That's the denial. And many of my dearest friends paid high prices. Many of them paid the price with their life for the lifestyle we lived. And I now attribute the people that I associated with as a lifestyle choice because, um, I mean, I'm standing here now in clean haircut and clothes, but I, I was a hippie from the 70s, and I, my life choices look like that. And those were the choices I made. And I just felt more comfortable there. And um, I felt comfortable because I felt comfortable putting myself in a position where I didn't want to feel uncomfortable in a room like this. It was a choice. So I'm going to fast forward now to 2001. I'm standing in the living room of our home in Fairhope. This is our dream home, Sally and I. We built this house. And I'm trying to sort out the mess my life has become. Um, I'm a functioning drunk. Um, I'm a successful business person in our area here. I now drink daily, but I don't drink anymore for a feeling or effect or euphoria. I drink because I physically have to. I cannot wake up anymore without having a drink or my hands will shake. But I'm in denial. Um, I'm not an alcoholic. I drink because of the pain in my life and due to the demanding people around me. I'm now looking at a second divorce, one I don't want. Um, from my point of view, alcohol is Sally's problem, not mine. I still have a job. I've never been convicted of a DUI. Convicted. Um, I never had a drunken wreck. Um, this can't be my problem. But what begins to become apparent to me over the next few months is, is I need to quit or slow down so Sally can get help. This only makes me angry. It makes me resentful. And then one day I discovered 
I can't stop and I can't slow down. So I become more sneaky, more dishonest, and I'm going to go to any length to get the drink I needed. So what happened over the next few months is I eventually drove away the last few people. I drove away Sally, I drove away my kids, and I found myself alone standing in that home, the home of our dreams. I am broken and homeless, hopeless. So on April 14th of 2002, I went to my first AA meeting. And for the first time, I admitted to another that I had a problem with alcohol. I had taken my first step through denial that day. And I began to take steps to discover how to work through the unmanageability of my life. And as you can see, Sally's here with me. We didn't get that divorce. What we can't cover today is that um, alcohol was simply a symptom of something much deeper. And what I hope is, is that you'll stay engaged with us for the rest of the series. And we'll talk more about how to experience how God, what God can do for us, what we can't do for ourselves. And this idea that I had, I, I came into recovery to save my marriage. And um, that was a very short-sighted vision. Um, Saving my marriage was not what God had in mind. Um, I'm so grateful that I didn't quit this recovery process before God was finished with what he had in mind for me. And this aspect of my recovery brings to mind one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is one that's very personal for me. This is Ephesians 3.20. God is able to do far more than we could ever ask for or imagine. He does everything by his power that is working in us. See, I had set in my mind what I thought God was going to accomplish uh, when I gave my life to Jesus. And I came and met Mark for the first time. I wasn't a believer. And I had decided early in recovery and very early in my awareness to celebrate recovery what I thought was going to happen and how this was going to work out. And if I would have walked away recovered recovered. Back when I thought I had achieved it, I would have cut this process short of what God had really in mind for me and for all of us. He has never disappointed me. Um, He seems to have always had more in mind than what I would have, uh, what I might have asked for or ever even imagined. And um, I stood at a place now where I could admit I had a problem. Um, Sally's going to come up now and talk about the unmanageability aspect of Principle One. Thank you for letting me share. Hey, everybody. I'm Sally. Um, I do have to add one thing. (laughs) No, because he was talking about denial. So I... And he probably may not even remember this. But his denial was so thick that the first meeting that he went to on April 14th was an Al-Anon meeting. And they explained to him that maybe he needed to go to the other rooms when he was talking about it. Well, Al-Anon is for the family members of individuals who are suffering with a substance abuse disorder. It's for all the chaos and everything else that surrounds the disease and in support of each other. And that's where he went. And they redirected him. 
Thank you for sharing. You're more than welcome, my dear. Um, when uh, John was talking about how we were going to split this up and that he was going to talk about the denial aspect and then I was going to talk about powerlessness, I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Because if there's one thing that I am very familiar with, it's the sense of powerlessness. I don't ever remember not feeling a sense of powerlessness. And, I, and a lot of that goes back to the fact that um, I have a seizure disorder. And I can tell you that as a child, when you are completely unable to predict or control certain circumstances, it, it, you feel completely powerlessness. It's just it's part of who you see yourself as, how I was defined. You know, I was powerless. I was not going to be able to change that in certain circumstances. So what I learned to do as I grew up, like John talks about, I learned coping mechanisms that at a time as a child may have been functional, but I carried them all the way through. And they became very dysfunctional, as you will hear. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic household. What that means to me is that I grew up understanding that there were more than one thing that I didn't have any control over. And when my dad was at home, that you went into the house and you took the temperature of the room and you then decided how it would be acceptable to behave. And to this point, as an adult, I do I am not the first person there, much to my husband's chagrin. And I don't come in with a bang because I'm going to come in. I am going to take the temperature of the room and I'm going to figure out what other people are, are looking for. And that will tell me how to behave. And I can't, I can't stop that. Even though I know a lot of places, nobody's looking for anything from me. I'm not that important. Okay? I'm just there. Um, I also uh, grew up uh, in a, a family that moved. My father worked for IBM, and I call it I've Been Moved. <laughs> IBM bought into the um, the theory that when you got promoted or, or changed positions, that you moved so you were with other people, so you never managed people that you worked alongside, kind of like the military PCSing, changing bases every two to three years. Um, but that teaches me or taught me that I can't get too attached because you're not going to be there long term. I'm going to leave. So I can't, I can only get so close to you and allow you to be so close to me because it's not going to last. Um, as I grew up, um, and, and got into my teens, I had my next whammy, which was my parents' divorce. Now, I see with our age, this is the early 70s, nobody's parents are divorced. No, we don't know anybody who has divorced parents, nothing. Okay? And my dad, in his active alcoholism, of course, already has another whole family. There's another wife, there's another set of daughters, and there's a baby on the way. So I'm completely abandoned. I've been replaced. I've been replaced. So again, I don't have any value. Um, 
And so what I did as I was growing up through my teens was learn how to find the things that I could do well. Because I was very, very aware of all these things that I was powerless over. So I needed to learn how to control everything else that I could. And they have a word for that. It's called codependency, but that's for another day. Okay? I needed to control it. Because what I had to do is I had, I knew how flawed I was. But I needed to control who you thought I was. That meant I needed to know what you need, what could I do? How could I help? How could I fix? How could I please? And in doing those things, how could I control how you thought of me? Because I was so lacking, you couldn't possibly think anything positive about me without me providing something for you. Um, you ever had a parent tell you you need to learn how to take care of yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you? That kind of sums it up. I had to be able to take care of myself. In recovery, I learned that they say that, that I was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Because egomaniac, because everything, I, I wasn't thinking about myself other than I was hyper fixated on how you were looking at me and what I needed to do to keep you happy because that's where all my uh, that's the only thing that I have of value now I will stop here and let you know I was raised in the church okay I was born and raised in the Catholic Church I continued going to mass for several months after John was saved and we started coming to freedom because I didn't know if it would last um, I did not have a get to God I had a loving God. God is good. Jesus is his son. He died for my sins. He rose again on the third day, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. You know, I, I, I can't recall not believing that. But I also did not, as I grew and as alcohol became more of a part, I was separated from that God that I had been so close to as a child. Um, by the time that alcohol had taken over, I was bankrupt emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. I was bankrupt. All I wanted to do was pull the covers over my head and make the world go away. Isolate. That was it. Because, you see, my solution had become my problem, and I did not know what to do. Okay, because alcohol was my solution. It was my reward. When I got to the end of the day and I filled all my check marks, all my boxes, I had done all of the things that I needed to do for everybody that I needed to do do them for, then I could have a drink because that's the only thing that could numb me to my understanding of how miserably I was failing to meet everybody else's needs. Um, I put it... Uh, the I, my whole identity got wrapped up in and and how what I could do for you in my roles and the whole H O L E inside of me was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger because I was trying to fill that that space that. I knew Christ was supposed to be in. As I grew up, I'd had many close encounters with Christ. I knew what it felt like to be close to Christ. 
but now it was filled with meeting earthly expectations and earthly um, guidelines. Um, the change, it, it, the enemy is always this way. It was slow, it was insidious, not just a slow, gradual change where my, as scripture would put it, my plumb line became earth and worldly things instead of God's word and Christ. Um, you know, and, and Catholics are a little ritualistic. <laughs> We might say. Anyhow, and and I had prayed for miraculous healing many times. I read about it in Scripture all the time, but I didn't get it. So my whole thing was not that God was, was bad or out to get me or anything else. God was good. He could do it, but his answer was no to me. And again, as I'm separating myself from that relationship, then it's changing in my mind. And it's my answer is no because I'm unworthy. Because I don't deserve it. There are people who get this close relationship, and then there are others who get to be in, you know, the B and the C groups. And I was back here in the B and the C groups, while other people were up here with the close daily personal relationship with Christ. Um, now, and, and when I quit drinking, I have to learn how to do life unmedicated. And I say that word specifically for a purpose. I'm old enough that they didn't have the um, anti-convulsant drugs that they have today. So they knew they couldn't stop me from having seizures. But if I can slow her down enough, maybe she won't have as many. Maybe she won't be in circumstances that might trigger them. So I was put on Valium three times a day from about the age of five. Okay? So I don't. When I'm 42 and stopping drinking, it's a big deal. (laughs) It is a big deal. Um, I was in my teenage years when a physician finally said, this is crazy. Why do you have this kid on Valium? And just took me off of it. I don't remember any of the withdrawals. But my mother can vividly tell you about the withdrawals that I had from those benzodiazepines for over 10 years. Um, But what I did is I found that's where alcohol comes into the picture. I'm a teenager. I'm in high school. It's the 1970s. And guess what? Kids who drink are, are the good kids because we're not doing drugs. Your parents go together and they pay for the hotel room for after prom. So you have a safe place to drink and you're not out trying to get into a bar. After graduation, they all come together and they pay for the bus to take you to Seville Quarter because it's 18 in Florida still. And they just changed it to 19 in Alabama. So we got to go over there to have our party. It it was socially accepted. Again, remember, i got to do things that everybody thinks is okay. So I'm drinking. So now when I quit, I really, really, really don't feel okay in my own skin. Because I've never done it before. Um, And it was as I got into this that a woman told me two things. She explained to me that, that my drinking was my solution and that and we had to deal with that first. But underneath that were all, was all that fear, all that um, unworthiness, 
all those abandonment issues, all uh, all of the the pleasing, all of that. And that was going to be a lifelong battle. She put it, she said that she recovered from alcohol only to find out that she was going to die a raging codependent. (laughs) The good news is we don't have to do that. Because, see, our solution in Celebrate Recovery is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ doesn't just help a certain problem. In the secular rooms, you go to a group, you go to a room based on the source of your problem. If you have a problem with alcohol, you go to AA. If you have a problem with narcotics, you go to NA. If you have a problem with cocaine, you go to CA. If you have a problem with crystal meth, you go to CMA. Are you following? It's all got an A at the end. And they all use the same 12 steps. But they focus on a singleness of problem. Celebrate recovery. Christ is our solution. So we focus on a singleness of solution regardless of your problem. So it doesn't matter what the hurt, the habit, or the hang-up is. All of those other things that were so evident in my life for so much longer than alcohol, those things I'm able to be in in Celebrate Recovery, and I can continue to work on those issues, and I can continue to receive grace, and I can continue to receive healing, and, and I can continue to develop that personal, daily, abiding relationship with Christ. Um, you know, as, as I came in, I jokingly say I had my Job, J-O-B moment. Meaning that I had to, when I was admitting that I was powerless, that meant I had to surrender. I had to surrender. I was in that, that thing where I had to get to that point where I remembered God is good. God was good in the good times, and God is consistent. He is God. He doesn't change. I do. My circumstances do, but God does not change. And one of the other ladies that I was going through with, she said, she goes, well, we can say it's the job, or we can say it's the job. And I just kind of looked at her, and she goes, we need to get our job descriptions right. Mine and God's. And when we remember that, we can learn how to surrender. I cannot teach you how. It is the hardest thing you will ever have to learn. I can't, uh, it, you have to do it behaviorally. You have to do it experientially. Because we as humans are not wired to do this. We can say it all day long. But when we have to ply, pry our bloody fingers off of a person or a problem and truly give it to God... It usually doesn't stay there very long at the beginning. So we just we surrender and we take it back. We surrender and, and I mean it's saying the serenity prayer every five minutes. It, you, it's over and over and over, and believing that God is who He says He is, that He loves me, that when Christ died on the cross, He died for me. Not just people in general. He died for me. And he wants to be involved in all of my circumstances. And I must turn those over to him. Because I am powerless over, my, over people, places, and things. I am powerless over all of that stuff. Um, and my life verse um, 
when I was getting through this for the last 16 years. Mark just preached on on it the other day. I was in my seat and I was screaming, yes, yes, you go, you go. Okay? Because it's not Job 29.11. It's not the famous one. Mine are the ones that follow. 12 through 14. It says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. And that is what Celebrate Recovery does. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I suspect that uh, many of you in the room and many of you watching and listening online can relate to uh, John and Sally's stories. But uh, to be perfectly honest, there are probably many of you who can't. That there are parts of their stories that you can't relate to. For many years, I would have put myself in that category. And I'm just going to be real candid with you. I was one of the the people who would look at people like John and Sally and say, they're the reason that I'm called into ministry. It's for those kinds of people that I do what I do. Because you see, I'm a professional fixer. I'm a professional helper. And the Lord calls people like me into ministry to help people who've got problems in life. So I'm here to help the Johns and the Sallys. And I actually got by pretty well for several years thinking that and functioning that way until I ran into life in the course of the last 10 or 12 years. And I discovered that God didn't call me to fix people like them, that I am the them that needs fixing, that I am dead center of the bullseye of broken people who need fixing. Now, I know we're short on time, and I'm going to try and just give you a short version. And I, I'll confess to you, I, I love preaching. I love what I get to share with you every week. And for the first time in a long time, I'm a little uptight this morning because I know it's part of what I'm supposed to do to share some things in my story that I haven't ever stood in front of anybody and shared before. And I don't do that to vilify anybody or to throw up on anybody, but um, I realize that in doing what we're doing in this series that it's important to just be honest about what's going on in life. I spent um, so much of my life just wrapped around the idea of being a helper and being a fixer in people's lives. I didn't think of it in those terms, but it's how I operated. And at the time, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. But when I met the woman who would become my my wife at the age of 20, met her at the age of 19, I didn't realize that a big part of what was driving me at that time was the desire to be a savior, to be a fixer. To she she came from a real troubled home background, and it had just it had been horrific, and it had damaged her in ways that I couldn't fully comprehend. I just saw her as a person broken and in need, and I was going to come in and save the day and fix her. And I had no earthly idea what I was stepping into. I had had no clue. I just knew I could help. I could make it better. And you know what? I managed to make that work pretty well for about 15 years. I, I helped and encouraged and prayed and thought I was fixing things for about 15 years. And at about the 15-year mark, 
things began to get bigger than what I could fix through my efforts and my encouragement and my prayers. And for about five years, I just really wrestled with, whoa, whoa, what do you do when the problem is bigger than what you know how to fix? But we still managed to just kind of muddle on through. And then in 2008, 20 years into a marriage and many, many years into pastoring full time, it was as if our life was an oven that had been set on 350 and somebody just cranked it up to about 550. And life just became utterly chaotic at home to the point that we went from just, you know, trying to pray through the things that, that I was watching unfold, the things that I had come to realize I had not fixed and was not going to be able to fix and just began to press into the only things that I knew to press into warfare prayers and asking for the help of trusted spiritual leaders to pray with us and reaching out for professional help and saying please we need somebody with some insight to try and help with things and and it was as if things went from bad to worse and then two years further in it was like something else just broke loose and now 22 years in we went from 550, 550 degrees to the self-cleaning setting on the oven. You know what I'm talking about? It's where you crank it up to where it's not cooking anymore. It's destroying everything on the inside. It's turning it into ash. And it was as if a covering had been removed. Suddenly we were in the self-cleaning mode that it was just utterly destroying everyone and everything. And at that point, I'm looking for anybody that will help. We're, we're you know, reaching out medical help, psychiatric help, counseling help, anybody, somebody help. And things are just getting worse and worse and more chaotic. And my goal has just been hold it all together, try and protect the kids from this, try and continue to shepherd a church and not let anybody know what chaos and hellishness is going on at home. And in the final two years of what would end up being a 24-year marriage, things just began to be more chaotic and out of control at home. And there were three or four different wake-up calls that happened in the course of that time where, I mean, I'm at the point, I'm like, I'll do anything to fix this situation, and nothing is fixing it. It is getting progressively much worse, much worse. Finally, the psychiatrist said, there's going to have to be in-depth therapy that goes on we're like what whatever just just give some relief they did extensive evaluations and came back and said we didn't find one thing or two things or three things we found a list of diagnosed disorders here this is what's going on now i have an undergraduate degree in psychology which means i'm about qualified to attend bar or something doesn't mean a lot but it but I, i had at least some cursory understanding of psychological and emotional issues and now i'm looking at a list of things and realizing any one of these would be a lot to tackle but this any two of these would be really hard to think about with this entire list this is impossible. I'm trying to make sense of it because one of the major things that's listed there is something they didn't cover in psychology. It's 30 years before when I was in school. It wasn't even a diagnosis that anybody had gotten their, their minds around. And so the personal physician for my wife at the time who had permission to do this finally sat down with me and went with that list and said, I need to help you understand what's going on here. And I'm I'm grateful that she did, but I'll never forget the conversation. She said, of all the things that you're looking at here, this one thing, and I need not name it for you, but she said, this one disorder is the thing that's driving it more than anything else. And you just need to understand the depth of the problem. You won't find hardly any therapist in America that treats this. 
Because nobody has a plan that cures it. Nobody has a plan that actually helps it. Almost nobody ever recovers from this. There's a tiny, tiny, single-digit percentage of people who ever get better who have this disorder. And in that moment, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe there's, there's a ray of hope in that. She said, the bad news is this. That tiny little group that ever get better, the only way they ever do is they are the ones who completely destroy everybody in their path. They destroy every relationship, and when there is no one left who will have anything to do with them, hitting absolute rock bottom and no relationship left in life, nobody propping them up, no one enabling them, when they're left completely alone, there's a tiny fraction of people who will actually learn to behave and live differently. That's the good news. I'm sorry. That's where things stand. And so I'm I'm wrestling with that and trying to figure out what on earth am I supposed to do to help with this, to fix this? How do you how do you manage that? And it's about that time that DHR called. Things had spiraled out of control to the point that there was violent behavior in the home. And my youngest daughter had contacted DHR, and appropriately so. And I had witnessed some of what had gone on and, and was distressed in knowing what to do. And so DHR now, while I'm wrestling with this other stuff, says, here's what needs to happen. Your youngest daughter, the only one left at home, needs to be removed from the current situation. And that can happen one of two ways. We can either have her taken out of the home, or she can stay with you. But you can't stay together as a family. And we can't tell you to do that, but we're just telling you those are the two options that we're okay with. Now, while that's going on, I'm not painting this to, to say I'm a victim. I'm, I'm not a victim. I'm just I'm trying to give you a picture of where, where life can get to in terms of being out of control. I'm still pastoring a large church. I can't tell you how much fun Sundays are at that point to try and stand up and speak into other people's lives when it feels like hell itself is loosed seven days a week at home. And the elders, and I, I need you to understand, I don't bear any ill will over this. I, I appreciate that the godly men who helped to lead the church alongside me are looking at me at this point and who only know a portion of the story and saying, we know things are bad. If it looks like this is going to end in divorce, we need for you to resign. And so I'm, I'm wrestling with all of this, and it's at that point in time that my youngest daughter pulls me aside and says, Dad, there's some stuff that you don't know about. And I'm like, I don't want to know anything more. And she reveals the fact that there's more physical violence going on than what I had been aware of. And at that point, for the first time in my life, I fully came to terms with just how utterly powerless I was to help my situation, to help my family. You get to where you're trying to man it. You think you're going to fix. And you get from the point of knowing you can't fix it to you've got to manage it. And then you get to the point that you know you can't manage it. And you just want to protect some of the people that you love in it. And then you get to the place of realizing that you failed at even that. And I just remember realizing I have completely failed. I have to resign the church that I planted. My marriage is over. And I did not protect my own child from this. It is a feeling of utter failure and utter powerlessness. My marriage did end at that point. 
it felt like my career ended at that point. And within less than a year, my youngest got permission and was able to join the Navy before she was ever 18, just wanting to escape from everything. And suddenly, I arrived at that place that many years before I thought would probably be a really happy day to get to, the empty nest. I just didn't have any clue how empty the empty nest would be, that there would only be one person in the nest. And a sort of sickening realization set in at that point. Right up until then, I had been able to focus all of my energy and attention on fixing all the broken people who came to me in the church, and most of my attention on fixing and managing and helping the brokenness in my own family. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I didn't have a church, and I didn't have a family, I didn't have anybody living with me. I just got up every morning and looked in the mirror and faced the only person who was jacked up in my house, and that was me. That wasn't a pleasant realization, and it wasn't pleasant. Th- was not a pleasant thing. But I will tell you, it is one of the most important and profound things that's ever happened in my life. Because for the first time, I had to come to grips with my own brokenness, with my own powerlessness, with how much I was convinced that if I could just fix everybody around me, I'm fine. I don't have a problem. And God allowed me to get to a place that everybody else was removed from the equation. And he lovingly looked at me and said, so how are you doing now? And the answer was, not so hot. Because I had realized how broken I had become in that. You can't live in a toxic environment without getting sick yourself. And I had become a very sick person. A sick soul to the point that I wasn't mad at God. But I sure didn't enjoy talking with him. I didn't enjoy anybody. Most of the people who had been my friends no longer had anything to do with me. And I only realized after the fact that did almost as much damage as divorce itself. Having probably 90% of the people that I thought I was close to and cared about me cut off all contact. That's a weird, weird place in life to be. I had to come to terms with the fact that I had real brokenness in me. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't trust people. I I mean, my life had just changed so drastically. felt like it had been completely ruined, and I had no earthly idea that for the first time, maybe the first time ever, God had me at a place that he could begin to pour out grace on me that would result in real healing. When I no longer had any hope of fixing myself or managing my problems, I finally, for the first time, had hit a place that I could begin to move into God's plan for real healing and recovery. And I wish I could tell you three little steps that within three weeks I was at a better place. For me, it feels like it took about five years to to truly experience the fullness of God's healing in that. Now, I'm happy to tell you, years later, I don't know when I have been at a happier, healthier, better place than where I am right now, but there was no way to get here without hitting the bottom and having to acknowledge, I can't fix it. Denial had to be overcome. An honest confession of, God, I'm broken. It's not just people around me. I'm broken. And I can't get through this alone. I need you, but I realize I'm going to have to work your plan for recovery. I'm going to have to reach out to some other people who are going to help me walk through and do the hard stuff of dealing with the only person I ever could have really dealt with anyway, and that's me.
And that's the starting point of recovery. We've got to stop pretending like we don't have a problem or our problem is all the people around us and realize the person in the mirror is the only one I can do anything about. And I can't do it alone. I'm going to have to cry out to God and I'm going to have to reach out to some people that I can trust to help me walk through this process of healing. This is where recovery and healing begin. I don't know where you are in life right now. Some of you, you may be at the healthiest, best place you've been. If so, praise God for that. But for some of you in the room, some of you watching and listening online, something connected with your heart today. And something that you've been trying to manage or gloss over or blame on somebody else. God is saying, I want so much to touch and heal that. I want to bring you past that. It's not going to be a quick fix. But if you'll press in, he has a plan for your healing. And I want to encourage you just begin to open yourself up to that today as we turn to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we confess we need your grace. We need more than what we can muster. We need you and your power and the help of your family. I really don't want anybody looking around right now. I just want us to bow together in prayer in the presence of the Lord. I want to ask you a simple, straightforward question. If if your heart is just saying, I I know I need that. I know I need healing. I, I need God's grace in my life. There's something that needs to change that's bigger than what I can do. Would you just, all I want to do is pray for you. Would you just lift a hand and say, that is me. I need it. I need healing and recovery in my life. Father, I pray today for everyone in this room and watching and listening online saying, I need that. I need God's touch. I need healing in my life. I pray that today, God, that you would help us to begin this process of surrender and just admitting, I can't do this, God. I'm going to have to tap into you and to your plan for healing. Please pour out grace and help in my moment of need, God. I pray that you would do that just now, that you would pour out on us the grace now to press in. I pray for real healing and life change to begin today. And we ask it in simple faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.